you know, it's about uh, really ensuring that you have uh, good, solid and conservative underwriting on the on the projects that you're doing. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me, excited to have Aaron Yassin. Aaron, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, Aaron's with uh, Hive Developers, and uh, look, Aaron started kind of like a lot of us start. He uh, started in New Jersey, just purchasing properties uh, under undervalued market of, of downtown Jersey City. Um, you know, first a condo, sold, uh, which was actually Aaron. Would that that was recently sold, or how long ago did you sell that? Fairly, fairly recently. So fairly recently. Yeah, I can dig yeah. into that a little bit too. It's a unique. <laughs> um, so, anyways, just start started kind of small and and started ten thirty one exchanging and and now uh, really has has grown into a design driven development firm um, that's got you know you got over twenty years of real estate experience in the New York City area. So I love it. I want to hear more. Let's dive in. Tell me about your background. Um, you know, we kind of started a little bit, but let's go. Let's, how did you start? And now what are you doing today? Okay. That's a, that's a great question. Cause I have a, a somewhat of a unique background getting into uh, the real estate space. Um, I I'm actually um, an artist by, by, by training, by education and, and, and by passion. I went to hmm. Uh, undergraduate school at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, uh, and then I have also have a master's degree in fine art. Uh, You're the first University. artist I've ever had on my podcast, so fantastic, fantastic. So, so it's good. It's always good to have people doing different things coming yeah. from different, different uh, places. So, and we can dig into that a little bit because there's certainly a, a lot of connection in terms of what I'm doing and what I talk about. But from a real estate standpoint, uh, one of the things that artists are always looking for is space a visual artist so always looking for studio space um and of course you know always trying to look for some place to live as well so um and and there are other artists that i know that have also you know figured out that they could purchase a building and have a studio space in it and, and it's led to a few of them kind of getting into real estate through through that avenue trying to basically because you know prices go up constantly for studio spaces and if there's a way you can actually purchase the real estate you know, just like other, you know, owner operator businesses where that can add value to your business. That's, that has been an, an approach. So the second property that I purchased, I actually had my, uh, my art studio in the building and the guys that, uh, I was renting from came to me one day and said, you know, we're actually thinking about selling the building. And I mm -hmm. felt like I was in a position where there weren't a lot of other spaces around and I had already gotten set up. So I it took it as an opportunity to kind of negotiate directly with them, but I had already, started uh looking at real estate and i purchased another property prior to that and there has been in, in addition to that my my grandfather uh who was in the boston area had some uh smaller multifamily, so he had some investments in real estate as well my father was in a different field entirely but had always encouraged me to look at property to purchase because he understood uh based on what his father had done uh the value in doing it how did you finance those first deals? Did you, was it you're making enough money to get regular financing or? 
Yeah, so that's a really good question. So this this first uh, property that I purchased um, was it was a really fascinating story. So you know, I was I moved up to New York City, uh, and there was a, another kind of development that was going on that was going to happen in, in Jersey City, which actually never never came to fruition. But it got me looking at at Jersey City, which is you know people don't know it's uh, just across the Hudson River from Manhattan, and there is a a, a separate subway system that takes you from New Jersey right into Manhattan. It's incredibly convenient. So I went over to downtown Jersey City um, and started you know, looking for apartments, basically apartments to rent. And hmm. unlike New York at the time, uh, in Jersey, there were uh, they had a multiple listing service. So actually, believe it or not, in, in New York City, that did not exist at the time. It still doesn't exist. But of course, there's tech that's taken over it. So I'm sitting in a in a, a realtor's office who was going to take me around and show me some apartments to rent, most of which were not great. Uh, he was on the phone talking about some deal and there was a little MLS uh, booklet right there next to me. So I picked it up and started flipping through it right while I was waiting and noticed that there were some condos just exactly in the same location where I was looking to rent uh, that were incredibly reasonably priced. And, you know, I could quickly do a calculation in my head that I could buy one of these apartments basically for the same amount of money it's going to cost me to rent an apartment. And when, and when I say that, I mean, you know, to rent, to get into the rental at the time was, you know, there's a broker fee, which had, comes and goes in New York sometimes. Then at that time, it was their broker fee, first month's rent, uh, security deposit, and potentially last month's rent, right? So I had all of those possible fees, about $5,000. Hmm. Uh, wow. Just to, just to get into just it, to get the apart, in. yeah, the apartments were about a thousand dollars, which, you know, now seems incredibly reasonable, uh, but then didn't seem so reasonable, but wasn't terrible for what I was looking at. So, but that was going to be approximately my cost. And as I'm looking at these potential apartments to purchase, it was obvious I could buy one for about $5,000 down. Wow. So based on the price. So I thought, well, why don't I just look at a couple of apartments? Um, and, and, you know, I, I have tended to take action. And this is certainly an important lesson So I, uh, that most people should should uh, take heed of. Uh, I looked at a few apartments and I just picked one and I said, all right, I'll take it. I'll pay the full asking price. It seemed really reasonable. And then, uh, you know, at the time you could add uh, some additional uh, uh, amount if you could get it appraised to cover your closing costs. So I actually ended up closing on the apartment for a little bit less than I would have probably paid to uh, rent an apartment in terms of what the money was out of pocket. And I ended up with a better apartment that then from a carrying cost standpoint, cost me less monthly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, that, and, it, and the rent continue to increase where your payments don't now to your taxes, insurance, and certainly those do, but uh, uh, yeah, well, they actually on the, <laughs> this is funny too, that, uh, uh, Jersey city was supposed to reevaluate the taxes for a long time and they didn't do it until about you know, five or six years ago. So the taxes were incredibly low for a long, nice. for a long time, a long time. Um, but what that allowed me to do too, was, you know, since I got into the, uh, the apartment and at the time, you know, I will say there was probably a little bit of luck going on because, you know, people were moving back into cities and, and prices started going up at, at the time. This was around 2000. So there was yeah. uh, appreciation fairly, fairly quickly. Uh, and, you know, this wasn't 
leading up to you know 2007 and 8 it was still easier to get uh to qualify for certain types of mortgages so not long after i purchased it uh i was able to get a heloc on it and then that that a lot that gave me some money that i could utilize for for other purposes so that was how i got into the the, the first uh purchase and the second purchase was uh more expensive and it required a little bit more down and I, I had a little bit of money that I was able to use for that. And, you know, my parents did help me out just with the down payment for that uh, for that property. So kind of a combination from from there. And then fairly quickly, you know, there was a lot of appreciation and, and there was equity that I was able to uh, pull out of the, uh, the. The two properties. Yeah, let's let's fast forward then. To the kind of what you're doing today. So explain to our audience what your company's focus is today, uh, what your ideal acquisition looks like and, and project looks like, and then we can dive into the details. Okay, terrific. So currently we are focused on uh, ground up condominium development in Brooklyn. Um, and this literally does mean ground up. So we're, we're purchasing properties and there's uh, a demolition requirement at the beginning. So we're demolishing older buildings uh, and then uh, starting from the ground up, uh, which would you know, include excavation and the foundation work, of course. Uh, and, and we're building residential, so they're multifamily. Uh, currently, we're building just condominiums. Uh, there's opportunities, I think, in, in, in rental, some rental spaces, but uh, it's a different different type of underwriting. Doing so with your condo projects, you're selling each individual unit, so you're you're that's not correct. holding on to anything. Yes, that's correct. So that's the correct. exit for the exit for our projects is to sell individual units, uh, and yeah. and then to break that down a little bit from you know looking at the mechanics of it, uh, you know you've got the the acquisition, the land acquisition, uh, and so that's you know whatever price you're able to negotiate, and then you know you need to obviously put the numbers together in the right way, which I can just run over very quickly. So you've got that, that is a, a line item uh, in your uses. Uh, and we could back up for a second when you're underwriting the, the project like this, you've got sources, which is where the money's coming from and then uses where you're using uh, the money. And, and so with the new development project, you've got land acquisition, uh, hard costs, soft costs, uh, Contingency. This is just very basic. Uh, I'll give you basic, basic uh, line items, uh, uh, and then interest reserve and, and closing costs. Uh, and then for sources, uh, there's some different ways of doing it. The uh, we're now syndicating our projects, so that would include then bringing in passive investors to to partner with us and invest alongside of us. But it's possible where uh, from a capital. The capital stack is where all the money's coming from, right? So you're, of course, going to have uh, what what's called senior debt. So that would be a construction loan uh, on the project, and then there would be a portion of uh, general partner equity. This would be in a syndication, and then some limited okay. partner equity. Right. There's, if it's a, for example, if you're doing a smaller project, uh, you know, or if it was just say a gut renovation, it could be possible to do it just with you know some general partner or just the partner's equity, and then getting a construction loan or a fix and flip loan, sometimes referred to as, as bridge loans. So yeah. that's that's kind of the typical structure. And then from an underwriting standpoint, obviously that has to fit into uh, a total equation where 
you know, your costs are, of course, overcome uh, and exceeded significantly by, you know, what the sales numbers are. Right. Uh, and there's a lot of components within that that we could, we could, dive into, <laughs> whatever you'd like to. So why, why ground up that it's not how you started? Why, why ground up versus, you know, buying existing, uh, converting, um, you know, that, why, why did you have, have you decided ground up? And I guess also real quick, what size kind of condo are we doing? You're in Brooklyn doing a lot of stuff in Brooklyn. So what, what size are we doing? Right. That's a very good question. So a typical one bedroom is going to be around uh, 600 square feet. Okay. And I how many units are in a building typically? Yeah, well, currently right we, have, yeah we have two properties, uh, two projects that we're working on. One has eight units, although they are, are smaller units. There's more one bedrooms in that project. And then there's yep. another project that has uh, 10 units. And we have larger mm -hmm. apartments in that in that building. So that one ranges from uh, around a 600 square foot one bedroom to a 1,350 square foot three bedroom three bath. So we've got more variety of unit types in that in that building. And that would be a typical that would be a typical range depending on you know this is all you know underwriting specific. Where are you? What does it make sense to build? You know, there's a market analysis. Uh, from the local market and then an exit analysis as well as some different things that make sense to look at. And then also in terms of the uh, opportunity that you have uh, with the site, what can you actually build? So it's yeah. a significant yeah. number of factors to figure out what the best unit mix is in a project. Okay. So back to my original question, why, why ground up, why not existing? Uh, so there's, there's a couple of reasons, a couple of reasons for it. one is, is, you know, there's a, there's a kind of a primary thesis that we, that we have at Hive, which is that, you know, we, we're design driven developers and our goal is to, you know, build better buildings and to utilize what can be done today. Uh, the kind of understanding we have of how to build a better building and some of the technology, uh, that's available, uh, to do that and also bring, uh, our design, uh, background, uh, to the work that we're doing. So it allows us to combine, uh, you know, our core strengths. Uh, my partner is a, a general contractor and he's focused uh, on doing ground up projects. So he's really, you know, bringing that uh, experience uh, to the table. And then, you know, I'm bringing a lot of operations and, and design and aesthetic thinking uh, to the, uh, to the projects as well. And we're kind of combining our, our core strengths. And we have a couple of other team members that are also working on the kind of the technology and investor relations uh, components of, of the work. So, you know, it's, it's about what we believe that we can do and, and where we can really create a significant amount of value. And uh, we have the operational experience to do it. And we have you know, what I, I like to think is a, a vision for a certain model of, of what can be built and how that's a, a superior uh, product. And, and that's really needed in the market. Yeah, yeah. Every market is different and, and you've identified what's needed in the market and what fits your area of expertise. And um, exactly. you know, with your art background, probably works really well in that design build uh, situation. And obviously your partner being uh, a, a ground up developer uh, definitely fits, fits well yeah, in that situation. Absolutely. I think a lot of people think like, they think of New York City. We're talking New York City here. And they're like, man, how do you make any profit in New York City? Things are so expensive <laughs> in New York City. Like, what what does an eight-unit condo cost to build? 
Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. But I'll step back on that question for a moment and and just say that uh, uh, you know it, it really it's all about the underwriting in in any yeah. product in right? any you know, in any market too. The cheapest market or the most expensive market, which you're in, maybe one of if one not of the, the most, most expensive yes. market. Uh, so it's a you know it's about uh, really ensuring that you have uh, good, solid, and conservative underwriting on the on the projects that you're doing. And, and as you're just saying, any any project that that anyone's working on anywhere needs to be underwritten uh, in the best way possible and with accurate assumptions. And there are projects that can fail in what seem like the greatest markets. And there's projects that can do well in markets where someone might say to you, how can you possibly invest? And maybe you hear that sometimes with some of your markets, you know, you know, Louisville, Kentucky or, or, or Cincinnati. How can you know those these aren't markets that people generally talk about as the hottest, fastest growing markets. So right. if you really look at what you're doing and you understand what, you know, where the numbers should be at and where you can get to and where your risk factors are, and you can underwrite the project uh, accurately and conservatively, uh, you know, there's, there's still definitely good upside for what we're doing. And it, it's also market specific, right? We're not building rentals because, you know, in New York, there's been incentive uh, tax incentive programs for doing rental projects, and there isn't one at the moment. And that makes those uh, types of projects more challenging. Uh, so in, there's a lot of these factors in, in, in all markets that you really need to look at and understand, you know, what's the best thing that you can do. So just, you know, looking at the numbers uh, specifically, we're building in, in our market uh, somewhere between about uh, $300 and $400 price per square foot, which is wow. certainly going to sound higher than in, in most markets, but we're also building a, a, you know, a different kind of building. And there's a, a, a number of reasons why we have to build a different building uh, in New York. A lot of it has to do with the codes, uh, but it, you know, it's also based on what, you know, what our goals are of what we want to build. So you're looking at, that's your, that's your hard cost. So let's say 300, right? which would be if you can get it a, a really good number. And from an acquisition uh, cost standpoint, prices will range uh, from, you know, in, in undervalued markets, uh, maybe you can find something in the, in the 100 to $150 uh, price per buildable square foot. So you look at a, a, at a yeah. site. And, uh, yeah. How much your building can be, not, not how much the exactly. site is. Exactly. Right? exactly. And there's an equation for that. So you determine, you know, what that is, and then that's going to drive your, your acquisition cost. So you, that could start at say between one in 100 and $150 price per square foot. And then of course, when you move into Manhattan markets, you're looking at where, you know, people would expect very, very high numbers. I mean, there have been trades that have gone for, you know, well over a thousand dollars price per buildable wow. square foot. Wow. So very, wow. some very high numbers. In, obviously, that's amazing. So that that's actually more of what I expected you to say, because even here, you know, in Minneapolis, uh, if you're going to buy something, do a condo conversion, you're probably all in, in, in that three to 400 per square foot. Including uh, all your construction costs. Including all your construction costs, you yeah, know, your total, course, your total right. costs. Of course, it depends on your level of finishes and all that kind of stuff. But, of course, um, of course. you know, we're seeing a, a condo type product be that, you know, that price. So it's it's yeah. not crazy far off um, right. of where you're at. And you're that's not that that's not that cheap. That's um, it's uh, not a cheap. Little, little higher than I was than I was expecting. I mean, Although certainly you can get in a little bit less depending on the market you're in and, and all that. Right. But right. Um, 
but yeah, it's uh, yeah. and and your profit margins are likely or your your sale price is likely quite a bit higher uh, in Brooklyn than certainly. So between the two projects that we're working on, you know, we're going to expect exit price per square foot. You know, there's another equation that goes on there, and there's a whole you know there's a yeah. whole story behind how you then get to that number, the actual square foot that you're selling. Um, but we were expecting prices, let's say between 900 on the low end and then uh, 1,050, maybe we'll get a sale uh, in one of the buildings that's closer to 1,100. That's about oh, where the where, where this where this market is. And in, in for the Brooklyn market, for, for on the low end for new condo development, you might be able to find something in the seven to eight hundred dollar price per square foot and then it can, it can go up to 1800 2000 2200 in you know there's some uh couple of neighborhoods like uh, dumbo and williamsburg uh where the numbers are high and actually higher than in uh quite a few neighborhoods in manhattan there's a lot of you know brooklyn's really had an amazing renaissance in the last uh 20 years and there's some neighborhoods that are just actually more desirable than some manhattan neighborhoods with with good reason actually I got one final question in the New York specific, and then I want to dive into some other stuff, but I got to know, like, how long is, does it take you to develop a eight or 10 unit condo start to finish? Like the day you purchase that property all the way to the day that you sell the last condo, what's your time horizon there? That's a, that's a, that's a fantastic question because that's also where, you know, where some of the risk factors come in, right? Yeah. And there's there's different perceived risks, and it's really in in any any place that you're building, you know, one of the big risks is how long does it take you to get your plans approved? So mm -hmm. if you can get your plans approved in a reasonable amount of time, and of course there's a an operational uh, component of the process, also you need to stay on top of all the details, and there's a lot of details, and so there's a certain experience level that comes in that comes into that many different details, many different filings uh, and different approvals. Um, but if you can stay on top of it for the larger project that we're working on, we're expecting uh, to be fully exited uh, in about 30 months from uh, the point of acquisition. So we closed mm -hmm. on it in, in early January. Uh, I'm still optimistic we'll be basically done with construction sometime next year in the fall. Uh, we're about to start demolition imminently. We've got the plans approved at this point. It, it's since it's a new building, it's a different demolition application here that's been approved. So we're just at the point where we're really ready to ready to get moving, and then we'll try to move as quickly as possible. Of course, so that one we hope to get out of in in about thirty months. The other project has taken a longer uh, from the plan approval uh, process standpoint, so it can take longer, and you know depending on certain factors and then also if you have a much larger project uh there should be a reasonable expectation that it's going to just take longer right. to just sell yeah. all the units yeah so you could yeah. you know 36 months is not unreasonable uh if you had let's say 12 to you know 15 20 units as a as a on the low end and then it could take you know there's projects that have taken a couple of years to sell out that have 80 90 100 120 units obviously sure. it's just you know more more inventory to sell so that's a, you know, unless you run into some unusual problem, which does happen, uh, and this happens in all markets, uh, that would be a normal period of time. And of course, the faster you can get the project done, the better the project does because yeah. time is expensive. Yeah. And actually not, not as bad as I would have expected. I, I was expecting to hear you say that the, the 
approval process in New York was going to take a lot longer. Um, just, I mean, just, just thinking of what a big bureaucracy in, in the city and just the, the, the hurdles that a lot of these big cities can put up can become very onerous. And so now that's probably something that anybody listening, whether you're developing in New York city or in Cleveland, Ohio, or, you know, whatever, it doesn't, doesn't matter where you're developing. You've got to understand that what the process is to get your project through and Absolutely. that the first time it's probably going to take you a lot longer than it will as you become an expert at it. You guys likely have everything in place and are ready to hit the ground running with the city where the first time you're kind of fumbling through things a little, a little bit. Absolutely. And, and the, the issue is that you you don't know what you don't know. So yeah. you may not know what questions to ask and certainly things things come up in the process. And then, you know, things change over time also. You know, the a uh, few years ago, uh, the Department of Buildings uh, uh, created uh, this whole online system for for filing, and it's very glitchy. There's problems all the time. Mm -hmm. We're dealing with an IT problem that they're trying to resolve. That's and it takes. That's where there's real bureaucracy in it. So there there can be a very streamlined path, and then there can be you know some zigs zigs and zags. But you know I've talked to people that are working in in other markets also, and some markets yes it's it's much quicker. Uh, but I was surprised to find out that, uh, for example, in uh, the Austin, Texas uh, area, it takes forever to get plans approved there. Yeah. I spoke to a pretty large multifamily uh, developer a couple of weeks ago, and he said he has one project there that it's he's at somewhere between three and four years getting his uh, project approved. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's just it's you know, it, it, that's that's excessive. Like I've never yeah. there are projects in New York that have taken that long, but they're they tend to have unique conditions to them maybe there's a they're in a uh you know a, a historical district or there's some other yeah. aspect of the project that requires more layers we do get things a little bit done a little bit faster here although everyone complains and and they always say it's getting worse <laughs> if you ask anyone I, like i think oh, that's it's human nature yeah, it's yeah. Getting worse. although the plan no, it's just getting different and you're you don't want to adjust it that's usually <laughs> what it truly is it's not getting worse. It's just different. And you don't want to adjust to the new, the new different. So, right. Right. So you have to stay on it. It's not, yeah. not like it's uh, always going to be the same. And there, there are more requirements now, you know, the plan sets are, are very long. I mean, it's, it's yeah. remarkable, you know, are, are, we've got, you know, I would say in total uh, 80, 90 sheets between all of the different drawing sets where wow. it used to be not long ago, maybe 25, 30 sheets. Yeah. You know, there's a huge energy section. Um, you know, there's more details required on building envelope. Lots of different uh, aspects of the projects. Uh, there's just more information that's required. Yeah, understanding those changes is important. Let's talk about growing your business and and what you've done to scale. And maybe let's talk about. I don't know. Go go pick out like three kind of key things that you have done in order to go from you know, the, the first beginnings of buying those condos to now developing and to where your company is right now? Yeah, that's a great question. And in my, my path has not been uh, linear in, in, in any, in any way. Ne so. It never is. 
Never is. Maybe mine's a little a little less linear because I've I've done some different different types of work, and I and I think that you know this could be helpful for for people listening because you know a lot of people look at real estate as a way like how can I get out of my W two job or I want to shift yeah. to something else. I'm looking for some passive in, income. Um, I would say that maybe unlike some other uh, people that are looking at real estate for you know the so called freedom freedom angle, uh, I I really like what I do, and I'm not trying to put myself in a position where I only need to work four hours a week. And then, you know, I can, I can sit on, sit on the beach. I want to build more buildings of a, of a certain type, uh, you know, based on a certain kind of mission. So there's yeah. a little, a little bit of a difference there, but how did I get from, you know, just buying some existing properties and then, and then moving into d- the development space. So the third property that I purchased, I was looking with, uh, you know, I had some friends that were interested in potentially going in on something. Uh, you know, it's New York, so things are expensive. So, you know, that's a conversation that people that are looking often have. Uh, and we were looking initially for a loft building that we could convert into kind of live work, our artist loft spaces, um, you know, which was definitely something that appealed to me at the time. I wanted a great, a great studio. Um, and in that, during that process of looking, uh, we ended up finding a building that was just, it wasn't going to be that type of building, but it was in a great location. And I was kind of, you know, ready to go either way. I, I liked the idea of really investing and investing in, in a, a great location where there was some uh, opportunity to kind of develop the property. So that appealed to me at that, at that time, uh, even though, you know, I was kind of too dumb to know what I, I didn't know and how complicated and challenging it would be. And that project, unlike some of those other, you know, those, those earlier investments, it took a long time uh, to really, you know, and deal with. And there were a lot of challenges involved, but we did ultimately develop the air rights and the location proved to be ab- absolutely extraordinary. And, you know, the return on the investment over time from a, you know, a pure dollar standpoint was uh, what I was hoping it would be. It just took longer. It, it was a, a much longer process, but, you know, I knew that if I could just dig into it and put the time in that it would, it it, it would do that. And, and it was great that that kind of thesis worked out. Um, and then once completing that project, I just, it really got this itch. You know, I, I just, the idea of being able to really create something, you know, as an artist, I, I make things and I make lots of different things. And so, you know, make creating a building is you know, seem like kind of the ultimate thing to make. And my even my my work itself is very focused on architecture um, and a strong interest in architecture and and, uh, and again the process of, of fabrication and and, and building. Uh, and then in at that same time, I had a job working uh as a studio director for an artist and designer and in that capacity we worked with uh dozens of architects and interior designers on on very complex uh projects you know integrating kind of decorative art uh, elements or public art uh or in certain fixtures we did work for tiffany and company for many years Mm -hmm. delivered delivered probably a thousand chandeliers in wall sconces that were custom uh, to stores all over the world. So it gave me a lot of experience just, you know, in a process standpoint and being in a position where there was a lot of complexity that was basically complexity of just inventing something like, where do you even start? How do you think about something? You know, how are you going to make it? How does that even work? How does it fit into, you know, everything else that you're working on? So there was, there was definite, there's definitely a lot of experience that I'm drawing from, from, from that position. And then, you know, you know, when it, there was an opportunity to kind of transition into doing uh, different work, 
um, about 2018. Uh, and at the time I partnered with a, with an architect and we started doing uh, some design work. Um, and we actually won some awards for some of the, one of the projects that we worked on. Uh, and it, it, during that, uh, that collaboration, uh, my focus again shifted to thinking about uh, originating development projects and how I could bring that mindset uh, to that work. So it's this is kind of the the zigzags the, the zigzags in the process. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, what's a daily habit, a routine that you have that you feel like sets you up? That's a great question. Um, I do like to exercise and I like to do that in the morning. Um, and I think that that's really kind of a great way to, to kind of get my day going. Um, I often run and I, I, I like to listen to audiobooks and podcasts uh, while I do that. Um, I've listened to your podcast, the one that we're doing awesome. right now on while, I, while I'm working out. So I feel like that's a great that's a great way to you know just really kind of supercharge uh, as a daily habit. Love it. Love it. Absolutely. I, I love doing a workout and listening to a podcast or an audible book uh, you kind of uh, multitasking is maybe the, a terrible thing to do, but when you're listening to a podcast and you're working out, I feel like that's a, that's a good use of multitasking when we're actually able to maybe get a little bit of both done at the same time. So, um, what's a mistake that you have made and how can you teach our listeners to learn from that? Well, we've certainly, myself personally, definitely made a, a good number of mistakes uh, over the years. You know, it kind of goes goes with the territory. Um, you know, there's so many different things and decisions that that you need to make. Um, one thing that I would point to is maybe a little bit more abstract, but it's just not asking all the right questions, not really digging into you know, maybe it's certain aspects of a of a project or a building that you might want to purchase that could be, you know, not doing enough uh, inspections, for example, right. and you might have missed something, not, you know, some aspect of the due diligence process. And then also that can be, it can be before you make a purchase or or after you make a purchase, just not thinking through where some of the costs might come into play or what some contingencies are that uh, that you really should consider. And, and also being really clear on the exit strategy. I, I think that that's definitely in some of the early uh, investments that I got into, I didn't, I didn't have an exit strategy. And, you know, I realize now that, uh, uh, you know, that was, I, I should have had an exit strategy uh, and yeah. I would have been able to, you know, then you know, feel like I, I, you know, one of the properties I, I owned, I just, I waited too long to sell it. You know, I should have sold it at five years and I ended up selling it at, at, at closer to year 10 and between five and 10, it really didn't appreciate that much. Hmm. So having, you know, all asking all the right questions, figuring out how to ask the right questions and, you know, getting enough information. So, you know what they are, because you may not know what they are. And there's a lot of available resources and, you know, there's a lot of people that can, you can, you can just network with that can help you understand what are the right questions to ask. Uh, yep. And then really working from some actual materials, put together a spreadsheet and and really try to think through everything. And then also from that, don't let it cripple you because you're going to miss something, right? If you look at you, you put all these, this, all this on a spreadsheet, you're like, oh no, this is going to be terrible. I'm missing something. Yeah. I can't do this, you know? 
you're you're gonna you're going to miss things. That's just how it is. There's no way around it. But I like the uh, understanding your exit strategy too, and having it, and and I think that goes with what's your overall business plan to you know to grow and to move forward. But you need to understand your business plan on that particular asset and and overall. Um, it could, your exit strategy, quite frankly, could just be a refinance and, and hold. It could be Absolutely. a sale, but you have to understand. And I like exit strategies more on hitting key metrics than I do on dates as well. Because if I hit key metrics quicker, that allows me to sell it versus if I say I'm going to sell this building in five years, three years, eight years, whatever that is. Once I hit that, Maybe I should have sold it in year three, or maybe I should hold it for right. until year right. eight. Right. Um, but if I have metrics and even a time frame, I, I can massage that right. a little bit and allows me to make maybe the best decision for that asset for the business overall. So, but I, I, a, I like making sure you have that exit plan in, in place in the first place. Yeah, that's a, that's a great approach, and it, it you know, and I really like it because it's kind of a nuanced approach. It's not just looking at it exactly as you're saying. You know, we're gonna sell. At, at, at this point. Well, maybe yes, but maybe you shouldn't. Maybe there's something else to do with it. But, you know, establishing what those options could be that you're going to evaluate at a clear point in time and then making a decision from there, that's yep. that's very, very critical in the process. Yep. I've made the emotional mistake. I don't know if you have, but I've made the emotional mistake of, of I have the business plan. I have my metrics. I have my time frame. And then all of a sudden I feel connected to this property. It's right. for some reason. And then I pivot and I don't. And it seems like more often than not, <laughs> when I pivot and I don't follow the metrics and I don't follow the reasons that we originally set up the plan, that it doesn't work in the end. And I end up being irritated that, that I made that choice. Right, um, right. That's that's a really good, uh, good, a good story. Do you find that... Um, having partners helps you with that. They can kind of keep you, keep you on the right path. Like say, I, I do. I do. Uh, what, are you, what are you thinking here? Yeah. <laughs> like, having, well, and that's why I think, you know, have people talk so highly of having mentors is, and, and I, I feel like I've got, so I've got two business partners. They're both my mentors as well. They're not, I mean, technically no, but yeah, they are because we're, communicating together all the time. We're talking about our the the plans that we want to be. So we're mentoring kind of each other. We're looking after our business. We're looking after each other. And so, yeah, having a partner or having two partners or, you know, it's just super valuable to be able to have that check and balance type system going on. Absolutely. And because you you're thinking about the investment in one way and unlikely your partner is thinking about it in the same way. And even if they're, you're all, you know, you're asking similar questions, they're going to have a different perspective. Yeah. I mean, we just recently decided to sell an asset and I was the one that said, no, let's hold this thing, you know, and, and they convinced me and it wasn't stronghold. Like they didn't like, you know, tie me down and beat me to convince me. It was just good conversations. And I said, right. okay, yeah, that, this this does make sense. Let's do it. Um, but if it would have been just me, I probably just would have held on to it. Now, with that property, probably wouldn't have been a mistake. But at the same time, 
I think now this is the best choice. And it was through that conversation that made that decision to happen. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And just figuring out, you know, who you need that can help you with that uh, is, is, is really powerful. Yeah. Aaron, I, I got a question back to the development. Um, and this is more of a selfish question because one of the things that we struggle with the most in our value add projects, and I think a lot of people struggle with this, especially today, uh, but I think it's always a challenge is cost overruns and time to completion. You know, you've got a business partner that that's his area of expertise. So this is maybe a little bit outside of your box, but I, I want to understand what you guys, if there's any, you know, secret sauce or anything special you feel like you are doing to make sure that you're controlling costs and controlling time on your completions. Yeah, that's that, that's a great question because those are really two uh, two slightly more abstract factors, right? Getting into a project that could really you know uh, cause a, a lot of downward pressure on your exit it's a numbers. Right? Big derailment, especially on like a condo project like yours, yes. where you de- yes. you yes. depend on the numbers. Absolutely. So, uh, in, in, in for me personally, thinking through that, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to find a general contractor that I could partner with. Because uh, I, I understand where there are some risk factors there. Look, there's you got to be able to find someone that you can get along with, that you can trust, and that's really that's that's critical. Um, and that understands and has the right relationships uh, that's able to facilitate getting getting the work done. One issue with contractors, which you, you've possibly run into, is that you know when you're just you know hiring a contractor. Um, you might expect a certain time frame of work to be done. And then they take on too many projects and then, you know, you're kind of stuck and they can't, you know, they, they might ham and haw and say like, you know, tell you what you want to hear, but then it still ends up taking months, months longer. Um, and that's really a, uh, that that's going to cause you terrible problems. It's going to that, cost you a lot of money. Yeah. You know? And that probably happens about 98.6% of the time. Very, yeah. Very, very, very typical. And I, I mean, I know other uh, operators that are doing, maybe, you know, heavy value add or, or some new construction. And, you know, some of them have really tried to bring some of the work in-house also to just get more control over it. I think if it's possible- Are you guys in-house or are you using third party still? Well, for uh, subcontractors, you know, my so my partner has a, a general contracting license uh, through yeah. an affiliate. And then you're using and, subcontractors. Yes, of course. You know, you're going to have yes. a lot of different subcontractors and the more relationships you have with the subcontractors- you know, the better off you're going to be, because that way you'll have someone else to call. You can get multiple bids. Uh, so developing those relationships, if this is, you know, what you're going to want to, what you're interested in getting into, let's just say it's even a certain type of fix and flip, you know, go out and talk to a lot of people that are doing the work as many as you can uh, to start with and look at their projects and understand what it is that they're doing. You know, this is certainly, uh, you know, from my perspective with the construction and, and my fine art background and having done a lot of manufacturing, I can look at work that people have done uh, and get a sense of, you know, where their quality level is at and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that ability, you know, you find someone that, you know, most people mm-hmm. will know someone that has some construction background or some construction experience and, and, can, yeah. and can then make some assessments based on the you know, what the, what the work looks like and then develop relationships with, you know, if you need a general contractor, maybe you're doing just smaller fix and flips and you can just hire subs directly, talk to a, a handful of subs for each 
different aspect of what you're doing, a plumber, an electrician, develop a list of those people that you can, you can call because guaranteed one of them, even if it's the one you generally use at some point, he will not be available. And he may not be available for two months, three months, four months, and you can't sit around and, and yep. wait if he's the guy that you want. So you need more, uh, more resources. You know, the more resourced you can be, uh, the better. And I would say, you know, the same thing in terms of, you know, it, that's managing time with, with your contractor or your subcontractors, but also having different options can help you manage costs because you'll get multiple bids for, for the work. And then this, and then by getting those bids, that can also give you an opportunity to assess costs differently. And, and this, this is just a very a, a nuanced part of the process. You might get a bid from someone that includes X, Y, and Z, and then you get a bid from someone else that just includes X. So maybe one price is higher, but it includes more. And is that work that you needed someone else to do? Uh, and then, you know, what's the difference? So wh what are you really comparing? What are you really getting? What's the time frame? The more you're able to scrutinize, you know, all of those different pieces, lots of small pieces and put them together, then you're going to be able to best control cost and, and time. And it's just, yeah. it's a process of, of learning how to do it. And then on top of it, if you can actually control the, the money that's in the project as well, uh, then you can see substantial differences there uh, in addition to those other differences. So there are aspects in the process uh, where you can kind of borrow a little bit here or borrow a little bit here or just finesse it. And that can add to, you know, an additional 3% or 5% on your, on your exit, or it can help uh, if maybe the exit numbers are down slightly. So you still hit your target numbers. You know, you need to focus on all those, all those details. Yeah. I think a lot of it starts from the beginning and making sure that your budget numbers are actually accurate. Absolutely. Uh, that's probably all been our biggest challenge is coming up with the budget and the budget being too light. And then you're always worried about the cost. And when you're worried about cost and you're trying to cut costs at every last corner, what happens is then the time frame starts to get longer and longer and longer because you can't use the sub that you know would do a great job, you know would get it done on time, but it's going to cost too much. So right. you're worried about the cost and then the time ends up going longer and that even costs you more money. Right. You could end up spending more money in the, yeah. in, in the end, potentially. So yeah. one, 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 I'll just add this as a, as a final comment on it. There's a, there's a common metric, which we've discussed earlier in the conversation about how to think about, you know, your cost, the, the price uh, per square foot to build. Right. But if you don't have some way of looking at that and assessing that kind of in-house with your own resources, and you just go out and talk to a contractor Right, because I've seen this happen with so many different people. You know, they'll yeah. talk to have a general conversation with a contractor and ask them, "Well, how much is it going to cost?" Kind of, you know, per square foot. Unfortunately, this is a not a helpful question to ask mm -hmm. in an abstract way to a contractor because they will have to give you a number that will absolutely cover whatever you throw at them when it gets more detailed. So they're not going to, you know, if you think, okay, it should cost. 150 bucks a price per square foot and you go talk to the contractor he might tell you 175 just to protect himself 
because if it comes back and he then, then looks at more detailed drawings and it's over the 150, then you know he then he has a problem. Then he just doesn't so, get the job. And then and then you're left trying to bid that out around. Yeah. You may or may not get it. It's yeah. So again, having a better understanding of the process. So it's, what are you actually asking a contractor to bid? You know, yeah. if you can know what your range is, include an, a, an appropriate range in your underwriting. And then when you're having conversations with the people doing the work, ask them things that are more specific, like here, we're going to do this, this, and this, this is what it looks like on the plans. And it's going to be done this way. Then they're looking at something specific. And then you ask them for, you know, a line item estimate for doing that work and then it's not just this one big lump sum and right. then you can look at the look at the line items and then really kind of scrutinize it you want to start from a position where you're negotiating that in a, a more equal uh position as opposed Absolutely. to giving the contractor like oh yeah two hundred dollars so maybe maybe i can build it for that <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah really narrowing it down nailing nailing down your costs is huge uh aaron uh, i got uh, one last question. We got to, we got to wrap up here uh, for time, but I got one last question. What are your three pillars of wealth creation? That is a, a fantastic question. I know you ask everyone this and it's a great, it's a, it's a great question. So I would start um, in, maybe there's an order, maybe, maybe not, but I would definitely start with uh, mindset as being the, the first pillar of wealth creation, right? You need to believe in what you're doing. Even yeah. if, you know, we all have imposter syndrome, you know, we all have moments where, you know, we just think, why am I doing this? What, what's, you know, how could I get into this? This is, this is nuts. You know, I'm really going to do, you've got to be able to have a way in which you can address that, right. Yep. And have the mindset to know that it's better to take action and really move what you're doing forward. But this, I mean, mindset is huge. So we could, that could be a whole podcast, right? Like multiple podcasts, yep. right? people to teach all about this but that's uh, <laughs> first first one my, mindset uh second uh is you know, partnerships right I, I i and this is definitely something that i learned early on and but also wasn't really practicing as much as i mentioned the first development i did have some partners on there were some issues with some of the partners so you know that can be a, a challenge but certainly uh by partnering with the right people uh, it's much more likely that you're going to be able to move what you're doing uh, forward much more quickly, and then also have more resources to do things because yeah. you can't do every, you can't do everything. Can't. So if you partner with people that 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 you know help uh, reinforce or provide other uh, other you know skill sets, right? You have one superpower; they've got another superpower. Yeah. Combine the superpowers, and you've got a you know a very powerful team. So that's 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 a I feel like that's really, really, really important. And I wish I would have created more partnerships early on, but I feel like it's, you know, it's, it's been very helpful in the last couple of years. And then the the third uh, is to, you know, reinvest. So re in, 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 what do we say about, you know, re reinvesting that, you know, we're talking about investing, right? So this is one of the, the, the cores of what we're talking about is investing in real estate. So yes, of course, reinvesting does mean reinvesting your dollars in in projects or, or your your business so it could be a uh that kind of financial reinvestment but also just you know reinvest in everything that you're doing you know reinvest in your mindset right invest in your education invest in other aspects of what you're doing take time to create you know those 
types of investments. So there's, you know, psychological investments also. And that's kind of like getting up in the morning and going to the gym, you know, you're making an investment in your health. So, on, you know, there's, everyone's got a list, right? What are, what are your goals? What things do you need to uh, spend on? And we can consider it spending time or spending money or, or spending other resources. Those are all investments. And the more you invest in yourself and in your business, you're going to, you're going to grow. There's no question about it. I love, I love thinking about investing beyond just the dollars, right? Cause that's, that's the, the go-to you got to take those dollars. You got to put them somewhere. You got to invest them. That's the go-to. But if we think about investing as every aspect, if we take that money and we put it somewhere, it's going to bear interest. It's going to go, it's going to grow. We're just, we just need to start with a little bit, right? We start with a little bit and we continue to put a little bit in it's going to grow and it's going to grow into something big. The same thing happens when you invest in your health, when you invest in you know, your, your family, if you just put a little bit in and you continue to put a little bit in and it grows and it grows and it grows, eventually it comes, becomes Absolutely. You know, really, like, really awesome. You know, so watering, watering your crops, you know, we're both Midwestern guys, right. You know, you see in the summer, there's, there's, there's nothing there, right. <laughs> or in the spring, there's nothing there, right. Yeah. You know, the seeds are planted. And then, you know, by the end of the summer, the, the corn's eight, 10 feet high. You can't even see past it. Like yeah. how did it grow that quickly? Well, you know, you can almost watch it, watch it grow. It's actually a fairly, quick process so yeah. you know we can we can think about that's a real midwestern analogy think about uh, uh building a real estate business like growing corn right it can happen pretty quickly and and you can watch it uh before your eyes yeah absolutely love it uh aaron last question i guess is how can our listeners get in touch with you and learn more about what you got going on fantastic thank you very much for asking that so you can uh uh navigate to uh, design drives uh, so it's a it's just that URL, designdrivesvalue.com. Go there. We've got a a, a a white paper that you can download that that talks about our uh, design-driven uh, development philosophy. Um, and then you can uh, reach out to us from there. I'd love to have conversations with anyone that's interested and would like to learn more about the types of developments that we're doing. Um, and the projects that we're working on, or anyone that might be working on something, if anyone's got a question that I could be helpful uh, in answering, want to you know share some experience, looking for advice, I'm you know I'm happy to connect and uh, have a conversation with you know anyone that where there could be some value. And we also do have a focus, of course, we have a strong focus on design, but we're also highly motivated. Uh, in focusing on uh, sustainability and energy efficiency. So if anyone's working in that space as well, you know, love, love to have a conversation and lo I love to talk about those issues. Awesome. Aaron, really appreciate it. Appreciate your time and value being able to add to the show. Uh, you have a fantastic rest of the day. Thanks so much, Todd. It was great being on. Yeah. To our audience, make every day a Saturday. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe, uh, give us a thumbs up, go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. Your rating and review just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and, and want this. So 
Uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to VentureDProperties.com, VentureDProperties.com, and download our free ebook uh, on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. Uh, and, and also look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go up to coachwithdex.com and check that out and uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.